Securities offered through Securities America, Inc. Member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc. Investors Advantage and the Securities America companies are separate entities. The opinions and forecasts expressed are those of the author, may not actually come to pass, and should not be construed as a recommendation of any security or investment plan. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina. Welcome aboard, my friends. This is John Grace and Danny Medina here, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. So glad you could spend some time with us this wild and wonderful Wednesday afternoon. I guess it's afternoon everywhere in these United States of America, so we're not upside down there. We're going to have a, a very interesting series of discussions, starting off with uh, mortgage forbearance, and apparently it's about to end for millions of Americans, and there's some good news for home buyers. we'll discuss and then we want to look at a couple of case studies. We think this is very helpful. And you might want to grab a pencil and a paper because there will be some numbers. Daniel and I will walk through them slowly. We're not trying to dazzle you with, you know, you know that thing. <laughs> so we want to walk through the numbers so that you can get an understanding of how these numbers may apply to you. The first one will be with a millennial, age 32, and got uh, laid off from work at one of the airlines. And she wanted to just take out $5,000 immediately for a host of reasons. So we'll talk about that. The pros as well as the cons. Because see, you you know, whatever the situation is, there's good news, there's bad news. You want to see it as it is, and you decide what you want to do. And then we'll turn our attention to those preparing for retirement, sitting on uh, about $1.3 million in their 401ks and, and other IRAs, for example. And they're trying to make work optional in about four years or so. So we'll help them see those odds as they are today and as they might be in the event we see another market downturn. And remember, you might not remember, but uh, there have been two 50% losses within the same decade. That was 0002 and then 0708. And Daniel and I, we, we, can, we can talk at length about how 08 turned out starting around this time of the year, hmm, August, September, and October seem to be very daunting timeframes after people get back to work and come back from vacation. I honestly do not believe this time is going to be any different. In fact, it is reasonable to me that we should expect it to be about the same as 2008 and maybe even worse. But again, it's not about the prediction. It's all about the preparation. So we'll go back and look at what the 32-year-old has to consider and what the 65 and 62-year-olds have to consider in preparation for starting to take withdrawals that certainly become required from retirement accounts, traditional retirement accounts, uh, new law as of 72. So that, you know, when you were in the case where you were 32, for example, and you could buy and hold and add to your, your, your accounts, that's very different when you reach your 70s, particularly at 72, when you have to start taking money from your retirement account, you can't hold it. You must sell off uh, enough, at least to satisfy the internal revenue service called retirement uh, required minimum distributions. So that's a whole new ball game. And we want to help you see what that looks like before you get there. And then we want to talk about some, some more good news we find. And that is uh, relative to your, right now it's 401ks, how you might be able to turn it into a virtual ATM machine. And, and, and don't be, um, don't, don't listen, don't hear me say 401k without thinking this will ultimately apply to all retirement accounts. So we'll, we'll get into the details there. 
But as we do every week, we talk about what's going on in the market on a year-to-date basis. And what we see is year-to-date, January 1 through today, market closing in about uh, 44 minutes, 54 minutes. It's up 15.32%. On the other side of that equation, today the market's off 142 and some change points. This, as I say, August, September, and October become, in fact, uh, we wrote an article, The Angst of August, and that was part of our discussion just last week. August seems to be one of those months that things just seem to be coming apart at the, at the seams or at the wheels, and we don't really know why, but it's one of those things we would suggest we want to be prepared for in the event this might be an occasion like that. With the S&P 500, very good annual numbers, 18.2% so far this year off about uh, nearly 14 points. Well, now 14 points in real time uh, for the S&P 500. The NASDAQ is interesting because while it's up 13.74 January 1 through today, uh, it's often almost four points right now. Now, the reason I mentioned that it's interesting is because you're seeing, you know, everywhere in, in, in actually red numbers so far this year. And that's been what happened yesterday. And that has followed the market highs that I think were reached on either Friday or Monday, um, all time highs, particularly with the S&P and the Dow. But sometimes what we see is that there are real highs that are achieved. And sometimes there's what's called a blowover top. In other words, it just uh, gets more and more frothy and it just has a real big rush. And then you know, all these things that were going like trees to the sky suddenly turn around and reverse themselves. So what we see in real news today is that the stocks are drifting after the S&P 500's worst day in a month. This is according to uh, Yahoo Finance. Uh, and we're seeing that uh, there's a weaker than expected economic data and mixed retail earnings re- results. So you can't read too much into one day's movement in the markets, but you can discern uh, trends. And this is something we want to keep our, our eye on. Uh, when we look at the, uh, the notes that we can find from the, the July meeting minutes, uh, the Fed policymakers reaffirmed their transitory view on price increases and reaffirmed that, their, that recent price increases and inflationary pressures were transitory, which means they would ultimately pass, and suggested their timing on rolling back their asset purchase would depend largely on the pace of the ongoing recovery in the labor market. Some officials flagged the Delta variant as a potential confounding factor in the pace of the economic rebound. So the Fed, who wants you to believe, along with all central banks around the world, that they have all the tools they need in their toolbox to just make the economy be perfect, not too hot, not too cold, kind of like Goldilocks. That's what they uh, try to achieve. And and, and, what we're worried about is that uh, Fed stimulus may likely it may or may not be enough to stop the next crash. We'll get into that detail a little bit later. But we're, as I say, we want to be prepared for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. So let's uh, get right into this issue of uh, forbearance, Daniel. Uh, looks like it's about to end for a million Americans, but how is that good news for new buyers? Well, uh, kind of a lot going on here. So yes, about one point, estimated about 1.7 million Americans or homeowners in forbearance right now. And originally it was a 12 month program. It's been extended a couple of times. So for those of you who don't know what that means is the home, the mortgage issuer allowed uh, people that, that had a, a loan the ability to defer their payments. And typically from what I understand, what most mortgage companies 
did either they required you to pay the pay it in one lump sum when, when you come out of forbearance or push it to the back end of the loan. And from what I understand, a lot of mortgage companies have been been allowing people to push the, those loan payments to the back end of the loan. So if you were in forbearance for a year, you essentially didn't make your payments for a year and you extended the term of your loan for one additional year because you still have to make those payments. You just put them on the back end of your loan. So you're just extending the time that you're making the payments. Um, you're still paying interest through that time. So your your mortgage may be going up, but it, it gives it's it was a big benefit for people that that couldn't afford to make their mortgage payments for whatever reason during the pandemic. And for the most part, people lost their job or were out of work for an extended period of time. And then were those cases for all lit borrowers or was it primarily like uh, Freddie and Fannie uh, May borrowers, conventional Prim- loans? Primarily Freddie and Fannie um, and FHA loans with a, with a large concentrate, concentration of, of forbearance, and which makes sense. FHA loans are government loans. The, the, the requirements for the loans are typically more relaxed than a conventional loan. So down payment requirements are less, as low as three and a half percent. Let's see what else I think income requirements were, are lower than conventional requirements, uh, reserves requirements are lower. So for the most part, if you're on the lower end of the buying scale for, for dollar size and for income, you're probably getting an FHA loan. So if you were on that side and you lost your job, that's where forbearance came in. And a large percentage of forbearance was FHA loans. And let's see, there's also a limit on what qualifies as a conventional loans with the government uh, loan company, yes. is that right? Yeah, so yes. that's that's going to be relegated for the most part to uh, zip codes that are mostly outside of the, certainly the larger areas in, in California, for example, or New York, or uh, the higher income states, is that right? Yeah, yes, well, that, that goes back to the forbearance, the, 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 the kind of the people that are in forbearance. So if... Depending on your area, there's larger concentrations of FHA loans. Like Atlanta, as an example, has a, I believe, a larger concentration of FHA loans, which which means likely they have a large concentration concentration of people in forbearance. So with the forbearance program ending, you're going to have a lot of people coming out of forbearance that have to make some decisions, and if they're not in a better financial situation than they were last month or last year then the question is, what do they do with their house? If they can't afford to make these mortgage payments, what are they going to do? And the answer for a large percentage of those, according to Zillow, is going to be to sell their house. And I think this is actually fascinating. Uh, According to Zillow, people that have been coming out of forbearance, 25% of them have been listing their homes. Mm. Now, the values are higher than they've ever been. So that may be some good news. At the same time, for those who are underwater with the, with the balance being higher than they can come up with and having other debt, for example, which is not atypical, uh, they may find that they just want to delay staying in that house as long as they possibly can because they're not going to come out with a whole bunch of greenbacks. Uh, others where there's more equity and less debt may come out of this equation where they're, they can come out with, with the actual cash. They're going to have to move, obviously. But uh, it does seem to be creating potentially a, a new housing inventory. Does all that make any sense at all? Yes. So let's say let's say you're in you're in the forbearance program and your house is appreciated to uh, 
the highest price it's ever been. So, excuse me, without throwing some numbers out there, let's just say you have some equity in your house and you're now coming out of this forbearance program and you have to make payments on your home or you go into foreclosure if you don't because uh, you'll become delinquent after a couple months and then they'll, you'll, they'll start the foreclosure process um, if nothing changes. So you're in a tough predicament. Do you, do you go through the foreclosure process and just not make payments or do you sell your house and take some take some of that, that equity that you have in the house and go rent or do something else with it and, and use that equity? Who knows what the majority of people are going to do? But like, like, Zillow, like Zillow says, 25% of those people are listing their houses, which makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it could be, in, according to Zillow, it could be up to uh, even a higher percentage. So what that, what that means for the housing market in general is we could see a lot of inventory coming into the market. Ah, so that might be good news for buyers, uh, particularly if the housing value is uh, affordable. Uh, but it doesn't seem like this situation is going to be as simple as 2008, 2009, where so many people were clear, clearly upside down. It was just mass exodus and uh, there was no winning for the, for the homeowners at that time. It's more hard complicated to- this time. It's hard to compare to 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009 right now right. For the mortgage for the, for the housing market because the it's it's more like the market we're in now is more like pre-mortgage crisis. So right. pr- prices kept going up. People were getting in. Um, it was what we call FOMO buying, fear of missing out buying. So people keep saying, seeing these prices go up and up and up, and they've been thinking about buying a home. They've been on the fence of buying a home. So they're trying to get into anything they can just to get in while prices keep going up. And at some point, prices will turn around, who knows when, but at some point they will turn around. So let, let's say hypothetically, we get a large large number of, in, of post houses coming onto the market. That should create more inventory, which will, if the demand stays the same, that, that should bring prices down. So you have people that are coming in at the tail end of, of this, this bull market and if prices turn around on you, then now that now we're getting into more of a situation like we saw in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, where prices are going down and people are trying to, trying to get in and a lot of more people are trying to get out. And if there is a wave of homes coming on the market, that could be large enough by itself to shift the tides in favor of home buyers. Potentially, potentially, yeah. right. Potentially, right. Especially if interest rates are, are going up. And last week, I I saw an article that said last week we had the biggest um, mortgage rate increase in something like four or five months, one week increase, which they went up by about ten basis points, point one percent, which it sounds like a small amount, but that's a lot for one week. So if interest rates are going are going up and home prices are coming down, then that's a that's I'm going to call it a bad scenario for real estate. Right. Right. And remember folks, one of the things that you do not hear anywhere and we pay for independent research. So it's something that we study. 78 is the age at which most Americans sell their homes. Now that's independent of interest rates, location, inventory. It just seems to be the bell rings at 78 that people go, I want out. And keep in mind, as far as I'm concerned, the reason prices or the, I'm going to say the primary reason prices are at these nosebleed levels is thanks to the baby boomers, 76 million people coming into these United States from 1946 to 1964. That's roughly 24% of the population. That has only happened once in the world, only once in this country, and we don't see it happening ever again anywhere. And by the way, we're light, the U.S. is light up about uh, 300,000 new births in the last year thanks to COVID. 
because we can see the evidence that condom sales are going up, but uh, producing babies is going down. <laughs> so it's a very different environment in terms of what we're seeing and what we're going through. And we love it when people say, we just want things to get back the way they were. Well, I'm gonna submit to you that thanks to this COVID that I call a disaster of master proportions, it has changed everything in real time right before your very eyes. So let's look at things the way they are as opposed to things we want them to be or imagine that we can go back to where it was more comfortable and recognize that things are changing and maybe we need to change our perspective. Well, with that, we will be right back after a short break where we will cover uh, two examples, two uh, living examples, case studies to go over if you're a millennial and you got a lump sum, what, do you, what can you do with it? And if you're a you know, pre-retiree trying to take money out in about four or five years, whatever that time frame may be, how you can make sure or, or re actually see what your odds are for producing the results despite economic uh, ultimatums and uh, tumultuousness. We'll be right back after a short break. Member FINRA. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit ybpoor.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's ybpoor.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, folks. John Grace and Daniel Medina here, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. We're going to dive into a couple of case studies with you. And as I say, please feel free to grab a pencil and a paper. We're going to go through some numbers, but I promise we won't bury you with numbers. But we, we think numbers help develop the picture, okay? So we're going to look at a younger person, age 32. That's pretty young as far as I'm concerned. And then uh, those who are pre-retirement, we want to look at the, the good, the bad, and, and the ugly, all of the details. So here's the scenario. We were referred to uh, 
client's daughter, 32-year-old young lady who uh, is no longer working for the airline industry. The good news is it's funny how these things work out. She has exactly $32,000 in her 401k, where for the most part, she was contributing at the same level that the airline was contributing. And we'll, we'll call that out because we're going to say, first and foremost, when you're making contributions, the real question becomes, how much do you need to contribute? Look at the employer contributions as icing on the cake, but you have a goal. And in her case, at age 70, she wants to replicate what she expects to continue earning, and that is roughly $60,000 a year before tax. So after we look at her benefits and the accounts that she has and looking at Social Security, she decided that she would want to make work optional, not at 62, not at 65, but 70. So she would benefit from more time in making contributions, allowing for more market fluctuations that might work to her advantage and allowing for the benefit that would peak uh, from Social Security and she doesn't have a pension. But now her goal is, write this down, it's a big number, $3.4 million. And remember, that's only to replicate 100% of her 2021 earnings, which she expects to be again, in short order, about $5,000 a month or $60,000 a year. So when she turns 70, that's right, her goal is to arrive on time safely, like the airlines, to achieve $3.4 million to get the equivalent of $60,000 in 2021 dollars. But her first question wasn't that question. That's what we do. We uh, remember our, our uh, mantra and our trademark is the proof is in the planning. Before we decide or even advocate putting money anywhere, we're going to help you have a plan so that you can see what does it take to make work optional. Again, $3.4 million for this 32-year-old. So the first question she asks is, hey, you know, I've got, uh, I, I want to have a little cash on hand. Why don't I just take out $5,000? $5,000 is not much. And so Daniel, let's, let's look at this. For her to get, I believe she's in Texas, and uh, that's where she lives, so that, you know, we have to look at taxes because she's younger than 59 and a half, which means that, you know, that from every retirement account, traditional retirement account, there are going to be taxes. And prior to 59 and a half, there's also going to be a penalty of 10%. So walk us through, first and foremost, Daniel, what it would take for this young lady to take out the, a modest amount of only $5,000 right at bat, right off the bat. So the, the simple way to do it is to figure out what tax or estimate what kind of tax she's going she's gonna to be owing. And then we add that to the number that she wants to net. So in this case, she wants to net $5,000. So we're going to add whatever taxes are going to be due on that $5,000 and take it all out in one shot. For her, based on her income, I'm going to estimate her federal effective tax bracket, not her tax, her, I'm sorry, her effective tax rate, not her tax bracket, is 15%. So what that means is she's essentially paying 15% in tax for every dollar that she makes to the federal government. Um, for the state tax, uh, I'm going to estimate 5%. Now she's actually in a state that doesn't have state tax, but most people are not. So we're gonna we're gonna add five percent for state tax, and on top of that, the there's a ten percent federal tax penalty because she's thirty two years old. Now, the penalty is is interesting because if you can put the money back within sixty days, you don't pay tax or penalty on this money. In her situation, that was going to be unlikely. So we're going to add 10% taxes, uh, tax penalty. So that puts us at a 30% total tax. 
30% total tax on $5,000 is a little over $2,000. So for her to net 5,000, she has to withdraw $7,000. And so to kind of put things in perspective, folks, if Daniel has a car that's selling for, he's listing the same car that I have, they're identical, okay? And his is $5,000 and I have a car that's identical and it's $7,000, which do you prefer? <laughs> we want you to look at this in real terms, okay? Because it sounds like $5,000 isn't that much and it isn't. But when it becomes 7,000, sometimes people go, oh, oh, I didn't realize it was gonna be, if the penalty or the penance was gonna be so high. So it's helpful for you to see in advance where you what you're doing and that way you're making a, a eyes wide open decision and let's also say that what people say is i'm going to pay it back they have those intentions we have not seen much evidence that those kinds of things actually happen in real time you have another point on this daniel yeah you're you're right everyone has the intention to put the money back few people actually do because it's going to require some kind of windfall of money or you not spending all the money that you took out which doesn't always happen. Now, I want to talk about the logic of taking out some money just to have in the bank. So when you lose, when you go through a situation like this, it sounds logical to have to take money out of a retirement plan so you can have it in the bank just in case you need it. Logical, yes. Practical, no, because everything you take out of a retirement plan, you're paying tax on it. And you don't get that tax back if if you don't if you don't put the money back. And once you pay the tax to the IRS or the state, they don't send that money back to you, even if you do roll that money over. You'll get credit for it at, at, at the end of the year when you pay taxes, but they're not going to send you that money back. So what's if you're taking money out of a retirement plan just to keep it in the bank, just for, for you to feel comfortable, you're paying a lot for that comfort when mm. you could take that out at any time. So what I tell most people is you have this money that's available to you. Um, you. Don't take it out in one shot just because you want to keep it in the bank. Take it out as you need it. For her, so, she, has, she had some savings in the bank. Um, she's going to have social, uh, unemployment coming in, so she's going to have some income. And her unemployment is going to be just about enough to carry her monthly expenses. So for her scenario, she shouldn't need to take money any money out for another six months or so once the unemployment ends. So what's the logic of having cash in the bank and paying tax on it? There isn't. It's quite she, expensive. It's quite expensive. It's, it's a, that's a very expensive peace of mind when she could take it out at any time. What yeah. makes more sense is take it as, as on a month by month basis. If this month you need an extra thousand dollars to get by for whatever reason, just take out that thousand dollars. Don't take then, out additional keep into the bank and pay tax on it. Right. It's a, it's very expensive money. Like I said, if you prefer to pay $7,000 for the same car, you could pay for $5,000, you decide. And I think she's doing a real good job of keeping her expenses in, in pretty low. I think it was, what, just about $2,000 a month or so? Yeah. Uh, that's pretty unusual, but that's part of the equation, folks, to really keep your eye on what are you spending? What do you really need to spend? Because, as you know, once the money gets in your wallet, cash is gone. It's just a matter of time. So that's the short term. Now, here's one of the things we also want to do. And let's look at the long term, because as I say, it, it seems like taking out $5,000 isn't that much. It's going to be $7,000 in her case after she accounts for expected taxes. We don't do tax work. We work with accountants to do the tax work, but we can help people get into that um, game, so to speak, to look at what the costs might be relative to taxes. Now, let's look at it over the long term. Again, $5,000 doesn't seem to be much. However, remember, she needs $3.4 million. 
So now I'm going to ask Daniel if she were to keep that $32,000 intact over the next, uh, was this like 38 years, what would that amount grow? But we'll look at that first too. And then secondly, suppose we paid the tax of 7,000, what would that amount grow to? And then we're going to look at the difference between the total amount with no withdrawals for the next 38 years and the modest withdrawal of $7,000 taking her account from 32,000 down to 25,000, what that turns out to be in approximately 38 years, assuming we're getting like a seven or an 8% annualized return. And of course, you know, returns absolutely fluctuate. So that's the first question, Daniel, what would that account be worth if she were to keep $32,000 intact, uh, enjoy an 8% rate of return annually for the next 38 years? You asked that kind of in a convoluted way. So sorry. <laughs> okay. The question the, the question is if you take out $7,000 today, what growth are you missing out on over a 38 year period? So to answer that question, we have to assume some kind of rate of return. And the rate of return we're going to assume for her is 8%. She's young. Um, she's going to have income coming in. She's not going to need this money. We would be more aggressive with this money, especially when she gets back to work. We're going to tar- We're going to shoot for about an 8% average annualized um, return over a 38-year period. So if she takes out, if she doesn't take out $7,000 to have $5,000 in the bank, over a 38-year period and 8% average growth, her 32,000 grows to $596,000. 596, for 32, 596. 596 in roughly 38 years at 8% per year. Correct. All if right. she does take out the $7,000, assuming everything else stays the same, 38 years, 8% growth, that same 30, that now $25,000 grows to $465,000. So, so wait, let's just, yeah, 596 minus 465, is a difference of 131,000. 130, over $130,000, folks. That's the point. 7,000, 5,000 seems like so little. In 38 years, it makes a difference of over $130,000 to your bottom line. So please, before you get anxious and run away with whatever the withdrawal needs to be to satisfy whatever the immediate problem seems to be, please notice how there may be quite a significant difference to your bottom line. Again, 596 versus 465,000, roughly $131,000 difference to your bottom line. I'm sure all of us would prefer to have that $131,000 additional money in our account, particularly when she's trying to reach $3.4 million. So I think we've kind of outlined that without making it too complicated. Now we want to look at it one more way, and that is what does her contributions need to be to reach her goals with the $32,000 versus with the $25,000? Can you paint that picture for us, Daniel? So in order for her to to reach her goal, assuming we're we're getting 8% average average annualized over a 38-year period in her, if she doesn't take out the $7,000, she needs to contribute an additional $1,065 per month today for the next 38 years, and she'll hit her retirement goal of $3.4 million. 1065, so just roughly $1,000 a month. Uh, roughly $1,000 a month, right. If she, if she does take out the, the, the 7000 if she does take out the $7,000, She'll have to contribute $1,115 per month. So that's hundred, that's about a $50 difference over per month over 38 years 
that's the cost of taking out that seven that seven thousand dollars today. So you have to contribute more to offset what you took out, and uh, what you're trying to do is get a total of three point four million. And again, if you uh, keep that account intact, you'll have five ninety six. If you have to rob from yourself and you never put it back, and, and that's just something that doesn't happen. And understand, in the event you put it back, it's it's in increments, right? As opposed to keeping it intact, you're at 465. That difference is about $130,000. So, what we're saying, folks, is really pay attention to your spending. Really pay attention to the need for cash. Sometimes that gets uh, so um, we get so perturbed that it becomes we hyperventilate. We don't process. We don't breathe. We're just anxious to get the money. It's never enough money. But you can see that again, $131,000 to added to the bottom line certainly. All of us would like to have that. And it just means we have to have a, uh, a different way of going about doing what we want to do as opposed to, and sometimes $5,000, maybe you need it, maybe you don't, but you don't have to take it out immediately to Daniel's point and, and, and really look to see, do I have to, do I really need this money? Is this an emergency? Because if it's not, you can put, you can absolutely procrastinate about taking withdrawals. We would suggest you do that. That's one place that it's a, it's a, a procrastination is an advantage. We're not, and we're not here to judge. It's funny when people, whenever people take money out, they always feel like they have to justify while they're taking it out. And we don't, we don't judge. Whatever the reason is, is the reason is. You have to answer that question for yourself. Do you need the money? We're going to give you the the, pot, the pluses and the negatives of doing it. And in her situation, taking out seven thousand today is going to make a big difference later. So if she can avoid it, certainly avoid it. But if you need it, you need it. It's if, if you need it to get by, then certainly take it. Do what you need to do, but look at your options. So now let's turn our attention to a couple we have the pleasure of working with, 65 and 62. There's about $1.3 million in their 401k, uh, and they want to make work optional in about four years. They have about $72,000 of expenses needed after accounting for uh, pension and Social Security. And we're assuming that the rate of inflation is going to be 3% per year. Uh, for the next, well, forever, actually, and we will monitor that to see what happens. So here's a question, Daniel. You have some new technology. Well, certainly it's new for most people, but it's been around and we've been employing it for quite some time. Given where they are with the 1.3, what are their odds of success at this time as best we could calculate? So to do this this math, uh, we use a financial planning software but it's not math you can do on a calculator. Um, you, what we do is we enter their whole, their situation in our planning software, their, their current age, their income, their assets, uh, how much we expect from social security, how much we expect from pension. And then we assume everything increases at a rate of inflation of about 3.7% over the next, for them up to age 100. And we're assuming their investments are, are getting some kind of rate of return. Um, whether while they're working, it's more aggressive. Whether they, while they transition to retirement, we're going to assume we're going to transition them to income-producing products, which are less aggressive. Um, so the question becomes: if if we were to run this scenario over five hundred different market markets, good markets, bad markets, flat markets, all kinds of different markets, how many times do we do they run out of money? And we're going to call success not running out of money. And in their with their current scenario, 83% of the time we're successful and they don't run out of money. That's good. We like to be at 70% or better at minimum or 80% or better if we're really doing good and 83% success is a good rate of success. We're we're confident in their scenario. They're not going to run out of money. 
So by analogy, folks, as I say, remember 2000, 2002, 2008, 2009, you went through two 50% losses. And when these folks were working back then, they were making contributions. That was a beautiful thing. Now, let's suppose, I, I'm sorry to say there's a brand new hurricane coming up on the East Coast, uh, maybe uh, hitting Mexico soon, uh, headed for, we'll see. But it's called Grace, and I'm really sorry about that. I wish we called it Greco, because uh, I think it's just a terrible use of my good name. But if it, in the event another hurricane strikes your portfolio so that what was $1.3 million yesterday suddenly shows up to be 700000 because the hurricane hit your account, Daniel, what are the odds of uh, them seeing the kind of income they need starting in, in four years? So for them, everything stays the same, except the, the account gets cut in half. So instead of having 1.3 million, there's now 700,000. Everything else stays the same. Their, in, their expenses stay the same. So now they're, now they're gonna have to take out twice of what they expected. In that scenario, the odds of success are zero. There is no, there's no scenario where they have enough money to last to age 100. Odds were 83% when everything, uh, you know, blue skies everywhere, uh, roses all over the place, and all of a sudden the hurricane shows up, blows everything up, takes 1.3 down to 700,000, and their odds go from 83% success through age 100 to zero success rate as we see it at this time. So this is some, these are some of the tools and techniques that we advocate investors really employ so that you can see, are you gonna buy two matching motorhomes? Look at what it does to your portfolio before you go out and spend the money. Or is the hurricane gonna show up and exhaust your money by 50% or more? Uh, can you afford to weather that storm? This is the time to get out the umbrellas and look to see if we, you know, we like to say that most Americans are, uh, we don't learn from the past because we're too darn busy repeating the past. We wanna go back and help you look at the past or advocate that you look at the past with help to see what happened first quarter 2020, 2020 for, uh, for the year 2008. Look to see how your portfolio performed. Uh, we, we like for you to see how bad it might've gotten in your reality and then ask you the question, are you willing to have this happen again? Do you wanna leave your money on the roller coaster? I personally like roller coasters, for me to ride. And along with me, my friends, we scream our, our heads off. But I don't want my client's money on the roller coaster and watch it get crashed and burned and then say, sorry, well, you know, that's what the market does. It goes up, it goes down. So we've got to take a, a, a very quick break and we'll be back with looking at how to turn that 401k and other retirement accounts, perhaps soon, into a virtual ATM machine. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit ybpoor.com or call us at 805 495 2077. That's ybpoor.com or 805 495 2077. 
We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, folks. John Grace, Daniel Medina here, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. Glad you could spend some time with us. We want to turn our attention to what we think is some good news. At the, at the end of the day, when you look at your retirement accounts, particularly employer retirement accounts, whatever the letters and the numbers might be, they really pretty much all work exactly the same. And you could look at a thousand, what appear to be options in, and overwhelm you with all these options. And it's so confusing. At the end of the day, there, it's primarily one of three that you're really choosing from. Whatever the name might be, it's cash, bonds, or stocks. That's really about it. So if you can kind of look at the name, you can discern, is this a bond fund? Is this a money market account? Or is this a stock account? And it may show give you more information, but really they fall into those categories. We're going to be advocates of uh, folding as many, placing as many legs underneath your portfolio stool as we possibly can to make your experience more consistent and one where you don't run out of money when you, you know, before you run out of time. So the good news is it looks like Congress has been doing some good things, okay? Your tax dollars are work. They've given 401k plan sponsors, like your employer, the green light for offering investments to provide guaranteed lifetime income. They're known as annuities. They're provided by insurance companies. But this is a new offering that is becoming available to plan members just like you. And as I say, this is to 401k accounts first, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see 403B accounts, 457 accounts. I, I bet they will follow suit. So this is one of those things that in short order, 401k account holders like you will have this as an option. You might look to see if it makes sense to you, but other employees working for other employers where they have company sponsored plans are probably going to be folding annuities into the equation as well. Now, we don't think all things are good. We don't think all things are bad. So some people think annuities just are, they just stink. And they all do not, in our opinion. Again, we're going to tailor what's the right situation or the right vehicle for you. One size does not fit all. We want to customize it 100%. But a lot of investors really like having some money in a position where they know no matter what happens to the market value of this account, the company, in this case, the insurance company, is tied into the equation to provide you and sometimes your spouse guaranteed lifetime income. So the account value could go to zero, but the insurance company has wired into the equation, the expenses, so they tend to be more expensive annuities, 
than say mutual funds or exchange traded funds, for example, but they also do things that exchange traded funds, the bank accounts and mutual funds just do not do. They guarantee income for life, no matter what happens to that account plan. So less than 5% of the plans already offer comparable options, according to American Century Investment. And Fidelity Investments expects plan sponsors to spend at least several more months deciding what new options to offer workers. But it's something you we would think you want to keep your eye on. And, and I think, Daniel, you can, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a tsunami of annuities coming because of the SECURE Act 2020. And it immunizes employers from lawsuits by plan members if the underlying insurer goes broke. But what, what has been your experience with uh, clients in, in particular, where some portion of the funds are placed in positions where they can see that, uh, as I say, the, the value of the account may go to zero, but the income stays just about pretty constant, assuming the insurer stays in business? Well, in answer to your question, um, investors that have those kinds of products love them. So it's like having an income stream that you can never run run out of. It's like having a pension or having social security. You know that income is coming in. You know exactly what it is. It's consistent. It's not going to go down. It's not going to go away. It makes you feel very comfortable. And that's what's important, folks, because we do believe that there are going to be some scenarios where hurricanes, fires, uh, COVID, all kinds of things are happening right before your very eyes. It certainly makes life a little a lot more challenging, certainly more daunting, but at the same time, uh, the investors seem to like uh, setting up arrangements where maybe payments start now, maybe payments can start years from now. Uh, you are able to choose uh, scenarios like checks that continue for as long as you live, or checks that keep going to your survivor after you're, 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 you go to heaven. That's what I believe we're all going to do, by the way. And you may be able to arrange payments to your favorite charity, for example, after you and your survivor pass away. So the bells and whistles you choose, you want to look at what the options are, but they will depend on how much you want to spend and what you you want to you want to spend it on. So I have I have mixed feelings on this on this plan. Um, okay. To start annuities like like you said before, there's good ones, there's bad ones. And like all things, sometimes they make sense and sometimes they don't. And in our world, annuities can be very complex products because they have a lot of pills and whistles on them. And we don't know how complex they're going to get in the 401k plans. But I know when I'm looking at different annuities, there's a lot of different ways to that that they differ from company to company, what the cost is, what the term of the benefit is, if it's a living benefit or a death benefit or an annuitization benefit, there's a lot of moving parts to these annuities. So the what I have mixed feelings on is you're putting a product that by its nature is more complex in a 401k plan where for the most part, participants or employees are doing it themselves. So mm -hmm. are they going to understand the complexity of the annuity? Or hopefully there's some hopefully there's simple products and there's good explanations, but there's a lot of different moving parts. As an example, there's a big difference between annuitizing an annuity and just taking income from an annuity. When you annuitize it, you're essentially trading in your lump sum for a stream of income payments that last over the course of your life. Now that sounds simple, except it's not, it's, it's not as simple. There's a lot of different ways to annuitize. You can annuitize over a certain period. You can annuitize for your life or for a beneficiary's life. And then there's different periods on which you can annuitize for, for, for your life. As an example, you could take it out over your life only. 
So if let's say you're married and let's say you're 65 and you, and you start taking this income stream and you last and you, you die at age 100, you got income payments for 35 years. Now let's suppose you die at age 70, as opposed to age 100, when you got income payments for five years and now the income is, is stopped. If your family's still around, they might need that income. But if you didn't understand what the income stream, how the income stream was built, you wouldn't know the distinction and now you're gone and your income's gone. So there's different ways to, to structure the income. There's, there's ways to structure it over the period, over two people's lifetimes, yours and your spouse's. So whichever one of you lasts to age 100, they get, or however long, longer, they get the income stream that long, but that reduces the amount of income. And a lot of times what people do is they look at these income options like they do for pensions and they go to the highest income option and say, that's the one I want. When they don't realize that that is the most restrictive because it's probably for their life only with no beneficiary option. And um, married couples do like being able to pass on the benefit they enjoy to their spouse. A lot of times they need it. They're counting right. on this income for the rest of their lives. And if it stops when, when God forbid, the one, whoever took the income passes away prematurely, now what do you do with all this missing income? How do you keep things going? So there's, there's a lot of moving parts to these annuities. And I'm, I'm worried that it's going to create a lot of complexities. And a lot of times when you start an annuity, you can't change that option. So if you take an annuity income stream for your life only, and then five years, you want to change it, you can't. And folks, look, we, we want you to keep your eyes open about what's going on here, because sometimes the fast talkers use words that are just disingenuous, uh, if not outright false. Uh, we were talking to a colleague who says, look, I've got a, a no-fee annuity. And then as we delved into his particular annuity, which he was very happy with, we said, but there's an annual cost. He says, oh, yeah. I go, well, what's the difference? Whether you call it a fee or a cost, there's expenses built into this thing. So don't buy the, don't drink the Kool-Aid that this is free because it's not. Because of all those moving parts that Daniel was just uh, kind of outlined, annuities tend to be certainly more expensive than just about most other investment vehicles. That not, that's not necessarily bad. It's not good. It's just, uh, we want you to be aware of these costs and whatever the person recommending the annuity calls it, look to see what the total fees are. Do, do look under that hood so that you can see whether or not you think this is a cost that has a benefit that is worth paying for or not. That's part of the equation. Is that a fair way to look at it, Daniel? Yeah, it's, it's 100% fair. People love to believe things are free. And I don't know of anything that's free. You just pay for it in a different way. Um, like your, your, your checking account at the bank that they tell you it's free, but they're giving you a lower interest rate and they're, they're taking, they're making money on your money. Is that, is that free? Well, you're not paying out of pocket, but you're not making what you should. So it's, you're just paying it a different way. And annuities are the same way. There's a lot of different kinds of annuities and some of them will, will look like they're free to you, but the insurance company is getting paid a different way. There's a reason the insurance companies and the banks have all the money they're going to get paid. So, and that's not, that's not good or bad. Annuities do more than other accounts. And annuity, an annuity will do more for you than a mutual fund will just by the nature of the annuity. So it's not a good or bad thing. It's simply knowing what the distinction is and is it worth paying in your situation? And keep in mind, folks, uh, it looks like 76% of U.S. workers want their 401k plan to 
offer them a way to arrange retirement income. This is according to American Century Survey. And that's all because pension plans are going the way of dinosaurs, right? Uh, my parents, their grand, my grandparents had uh, pensions. Uh, we don't, Daniel and I imagine your parents have pensions, Daniel, to some, some degree. And in eight, 1989, a pension plan was the sole retirement plan for 22% of all US workers. 10% had both a pension plan plus a 401k plan. Uh, so according to the Boston College Center for Retirement Plan, and but 2019, a mere 7% had a pension plan, and just 5% of those had both types of retirement plans, a 401k plan along with a pension plan. So yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. This is really something I don't think you can do well on your phone, and I don't think uh, people who do this part-time are going to be very helpful to you, kind of like going to a part-time dentist. I won't be doing that. I imagine you won't either. So you want to make sure that you're getting all eyes on deck. We need to see what's going on here. We really need to ask some hard questions, get solid answers that make sense to you so that you can see that you're better prepared for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. Because at the end of the day, we know all of that's going to be in the cards, no matter where we might be on the planet. We want to make sure that no matter what the hurricane is called, it doesn't uh, you know, undercut what you're trying to do both today and well into the future. And please notice when we're looking at those odds of success, we look out to age 100. We think that's the appropriate way to do this because if we, if you say, well, I'm gonna die at 67 and we're gonna say, well, mm, let's not do that. Let's be more conservative and say, you're gonna die at hundred. I know you don't believe that it's okay. But the last thing we need to do is design a plan that it comes to zero at the time you said you were gonna die and you didn't, right? And you can't get a job as a Walmart greeter. So we wanna be prepared as, as much as we possibly can and keep looking at the details to see what, what are we missing? What has changed? What can we take advantage of? What can we learn from history that we either want to replicate or we want to avoid duplicating. So with that, my friends, we will leave it there. And Daniel Medina and I, John Grace, look forward to being right back here with you on Wednesdays from 12 to 1 at Voice America. Same bat channel, same bat station. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for tuning to Fiscal Fitness. Please join John Grace and co-host Daniel Medina again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have an excellent week.